0: Welcome to the 4th Estate Podcast with Marty Duran, where we examine how the American media are failing the American people. Bad reporting, clickbait headlines, and outright lies will come under scrutiny. Why? Because facts matter. Now, with this edition of the 4th Estate Podcast, here's your host, Marty Duran. People believe vaccines cause autism in children. Do you know Why? Some people believe it because science said so. Far from being anti-science, many of these folks believe themselves to be pro-science, and we'll find out why in just a moment. This is the 4th Estate Podcast. This is your host, Marty Duran. We're doing this because facts matter. The 4th Estate Podcast is brought to you by Jord at WoodWatches.com. 100% woodwatches, unique and unforgettable. Use the coupon code t 4 e podcast. And save yourself 10% on any watch at jordwoodwatches.com. The Fourth Estate is also brought to you by Suit Up, written by Philip Larson, writer, podcaster extraordinaire from Oklahoma. Part of the Roundtable Media Group is Philip Larson. Suit Up addresses life leading up to and after graduation from high school, and it does so in a conversational way. Each chapter challenges families and graduates to answer the question, not just why do we believe this, but what do we believe? If you know someone who's graduating soon, and that would be most of us, this makes a perfect gift. Visit philiplarson.com and let me spell that for you. It's two L's and an dot e, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-L-A-R-S-E-N.com to order suit up. There's also a suit up study guide if you're a small group leader for high school seniors perhaps or college seniors perhaps. There are other books and other studies at his website. You can also use the coupon code there T4E podcast and save ten percent off your order if you order through Philip's website. He will sign your products for you, and they will go up exponentially in value. I don't know about that, but they're good stuff. Be sure also to subscribe to his podcast that he does with his pastor, Ryan and Philip's Conversation Rules. Trust me, it's not a uh, it's not a weekly Bible study. There's a lot of great conversation talk about current events, and it's good stuff. That's Ryan and Phillip's Conversation Rules. You can subscribe in iTunes. The problem isn't science, but it's a misunderstanding or misapplication of science. Science is a tool, like a lug wrench or a magnifying glass or a kitchen appliance. It's a tool. The scientific method is a process of discovery, whereby ideas and assumptions are supposed to be tested retested, challenged, poked, prodded, and eventually proven, disproven, or watched. If a finding cannot be reproduced, it should face the skepticism a conspiracy theorist has of the moon landing. Let me pause just for a moment and say, if you've listened to The Fourth Estate before, you know that I usually read from a website, and then I will uh, take that information, and I will research some other websites and find out the truth or the facts, and I do a lot of commentary in between. I want to let you know that in today's episode, there are so many uh, resources that I'll be reading from that a significant amount of quote-unquote will be used, and I hope that doesn't bore you too bad, but I want to demonstrate to you that the thesis that I'm proposing today is not something that some crazy preacher in Tennessee got in his head. This is something that is a real issue in our world today. Science is defined, it is study, it is observation, and it is experiment. But the users of science are not infallible, and nor is what we would consider the system of doing science always trustworthy, which brings us back to vaccines and autism. In February 1998, a dozen medical professionals published an article in the highly regarded British medical journal The Lancet, The mouthful of metaspeak in the title, quote, Ileal lymphoid nodular hyperplasia, nonspecific colitis, and pervasive development disorder in children, end of quote, soon became known as MMR vaccines cause autism. A summary of the case can be found in the Indian Journal of Psychiatry, published April-June issue 2011 under the title, The MMR Vaccine and Autism, Sensation, Refutation, Retraction, and Fraud, The authors are two guys' names I won't even attempt to pronounce. Quote, in 1998, Andrew Wakefield and 12 of his colleagues published a a case series in The Lancet which suggested that the measles, mumps, and rubella MMR vaccine may predispose to behavioral regression and pervasive developmental disorder in children. Despite Despite the small sample size, N equals 12, the uncontrolled design And the speculative nature of the conclusions, the paper received wide publicity and MMR vaccine rates began to drop because parents were concerned about the risk of autism after vaccination. Almost immediately afterward, uh, epidemiological studies were conducted and published refuting the positive link between MMR vaccine and autism. The logic that the MMR vaccine may trigger autism was also questioned because a temporal link between the two is almost predestined. Both events by design, MMR vaccine, or definition, autism, occur early in childhood. The next episode in the saga was a short retraction of the interpretation of the original data by 10 of the 12 co-authors of the original paper. 10 of the 12 authors did publish a retraction of an interpretation, end quote, but that was six years later. The Lancet did not fully retract the the original paper until 2010, 12 years after the paper was published, but by then, the damage was done. Arguably, the entire anti-vaxxer movement, as it has come to be known, sprang from this one paper that was questioned almost immediately. The initial questions came the very next year, 1999. No one knows how many uh, anti-vaxxers are unaware of Brian Deer's investigative report, quote, nominated in February 2011 for two British press awards, discovered that while Wakefield held himself out to be a dispassionate scientist, two years before the Lancet paper was published, that would be in 1996, and before any of the 12 children were even referred to the hospital, he had been hired to attack MMR by a lawyer, Richard Barr, a jobbing solicitor in the small eastern English town of King's Lynn, who hoped to raise a speculative class action lawsuit against drug companies which manufactured the triple shot. Continuing to quote, Unlike expert witnesses who give professional advice and opinions, Wakefield had negotiated an unprecedented contract with Barr to conduct clinical and scientific research. The goal was to find evidence of what the two men claimed to be, quote, a new syndrome, unquote, intended to be the centerpiece of later failed litigation on behalf of an eventual 1,600 British families recruited through media stories. This publicly undisclosed role for Wakefield created the grossest conflict of interest and the exposure of it by dear in February 2004, led to public uproar in Britain, the retraction of the Lancet's reported conclusion section, and from 2007 to May 2010, the longest ever professional misconduct hearing by the UK's General Medical Council, end of quote. So what had happened here was Andrew Wakefield, the primary author of the original uh, journal story in The Lancet in 1998, had contracted with an ambulance-chasing lawyer whose hope was to create a situation to force uh, the producers of the MMR vaccine to pay up to families whose children had, Uh, contracted either they've been diagnosed with autism or they contracted some other kind of disease. Uh, If you watch any television at all you know these ads. If you've been harmed by or if you've uh, been diagnosed with uh, you may be able to claim a settlement. It's that kind of thing that was going on and so Wakefield was compromised from the very beginning so you combine that with uh, the flaws in the study the small sample size, and all of those things combined together. But the problem is, before any of this was known, Andrew Wakefield had been interviewed on television. He had done the media tours. He was the the cause de celeb, uh, and he was the guy. And so people watched this. Many people became convinced that uh, MMR vaccines cause autism. And even to this day in Hollywood, there are still people Um, like Jenny McCarthy and um, the actor dude Jim Carrey, who are anti-vaccine and it's traceable back in many instances with these folks, all the way back to this now disproven and long disproven theory. But the problem is the theory was put out as science. So this is why I say, that not everyone who is an anti-vaxxer is anti-science. Some of them believe that the original science was the right science, and some of them believe that there are conspiracies to shut down Wakefield, and all of that aside, but the fact is that they're holding on to what they believe is the accurate scientific interpretation of the data. Wrong they may be, it's not nonsensical for them to, to look back and say that this was a scientific thing. Science as a system, or science as we reveal it or talk about it, seems widely acknowledged as an impartial, amoral, and unbiased system. It is a system of study, observation, and experiment, but there's a difference between the tool and the use of the tool, between the tool and the user of the tool. The users of science, scientists, medical professionals, psychiatric and psychological professionals, sociological professionals people who delve in the sciences, these people are not infallible and these people are prone just as every other human being to self-aggrandizement, to lying, to cheating, to trying to line their own pockets. Of course, not all of them, but many of them. And we cannot approach science, uh, without the same hard look that we approach religious claims, that we approach political claims, that we approach media claims, uh, Science and scientific discovery deserves the same type of skepticism because, frankly, humans are involved. Dr. Otis Brawley is the chief medical and scientific officer and executive VP of the American Cancer Society. He also serves as professor of hematology, oncology, medicine, and epidemiology at Emory University in Atlanta. For many years, he led the oncology ward or oncology part of Grady Hospital, one of the largest public uh, hospitals in the United States. In his excellent book, How We Do Harm, A Doctor Breaks Ranks About Being Sick in America, I would highly recommend you grab this book, How We Do Harm. Brawley warns of, and I'm quoting now, professional societies of doctors who perform expensive medical procedures issue, quote, evidence-based guidelines, end quote, that are anything but evidence based guidelines. He also warns our current healthcare system is quote a system built on pseudoscience, greed, myths, lies, fraud, and looking the other way. As I say, the users are not infallible. But some people will say, science is self correcting. Mistakes don't stand because given enough time someone fixes them. Well, that may be fine if we're talking about how far apart two stars are from each other or how long a whale can stay submerged, but that kind of thinking is cold comfort for the victims of Tuskegee or the victims of eugenics or victims of terminal disease who suffered through recommended treatments that weren't effective because some doctor stood to make a buck or a pharmaceutical company falsified a study. We run headlong now into the philosophy of scientism, which is different than scientific endeavor or science. I'm quoting from PBS. Unlike the use of of the scientific method as only one mode of reaching knowledge, scientism claims that science alone can render truth about the world and reality. Scientism's single-minded adherence to only empirical or testable makes it a strictly scientific worldview in much the same way that a Protestant fundamentalism reject that rejects science can be seen as a strictly religious world view scientism sees it necessary to do away with most if not all metaphysical philosoph- philosophical and religious claims as the truths they proclaim cannot be apprehended by the scientific method in essence scientism sees science as the absolute and only justifiable access to the truth the miriam webster Dictionary Online defines scientism as, quote, an exaggerated trust in the efficacy of the methods of natural science applied to all areas of investigation, as in philosophy, the social sciences, and the humanities, end quote. And what do we call an exaggerated trust? What do we call a single-minded adherence to a belief or to a philosophy or a philosophical system? That's right, boys and girls, we call that faith. Scientism, according to philosophybasics.com, is, quote, the broad-based belief, underscore that word belief, that the assumptions and methods of research of the philosophical and natural sciences are equally appropriate or even essential to all other disciplines, including philosophy, the humanities, and the social sciences. It is based on the belief that natural science has authority over all other interpretations of life, and that the methods of natural science form the only proper elements in any philosophical or other inquiry, end of quote. Scientism is not science. It is the belief that science teaches us everything we need to know about everything. It can and should be classified as either philosophy or religion because that's exactly what it is. When you include the fallibility and normal human foibles of science, scientists, the errors can be compounded through believing scientism. As philosopher Alvin Plantigo writes in his book, Where the Conflict Really Lies Science, Religion, and Naturalism quote, Science doesn't address some of the topics where we most need enlightenment, religion, politics, and morals, for example. Many look to scientists for guidance on matters outside of science, matters on which scientists have no special expertise. They apparently think uh, scientists as, think of scientists as the new priestly class. Unsurprisingly, science, scientists don't ordinarily discourage this tendency, end of quote. If you're familiar with the television personality, Bill Nye, the sort of science guy, he made his claim to fame doing uh, television shows for children in which he explained scientific concepts. He's an engineer by trade possibly an electrical engineer. I can't remember his uh, area of speciality, but he certainly is not a philosopher. But Bill Nye now hosts any number of different questions, and a recent question had to do with philosophy, and he bungled it so bad that philosophers came out of the woodwork or out from under the rocks, if you think that's where they live, to demonstrate that Bill Nye knew absolutely nothing about what he was talking about when it came to philosophy. But people who hold to scientism, people who hold that science can tell us everything about everything that's important to know about everything, they go to Bill Nye to ask questions that are outside of his realm of expertise because they think he can know the answer simply because he's a scientist. The same with Richard Dawkins. The same with others who speak well outside of their realm of knowledge. What is the philosophy that causes people to believe that scientists can answer any and every question that has any meaning about everything? Well, it's scientism. And scientism is what leads people to be uncritical about science and the scientific process and especially the people behind it. Now, the reason that this brief excursus on scientism, and this brings us uh, specifically to the the theme of this podcast, and that is scientific journals. Several months ago, I was in a debate with a friend who happens to be an atheist, and, and uh, I pointed out the fact that journals have issues. Scientific journals are going through a struggle, and, and his response was, well, I don't care about scientific journals. I only care about science. Well, it may have come as a shock to him and, and may come as a shock to you, but the way that science plays itself out in real life Is recorded in journals uh, and theories and experimentation are written down. Uh, The authors submit these journal articles. They are reviewed by their peers, uh, other experts in the field, doctors in the field, many of whom have written themselves. And once it passes, quote, peer review, then it's published. And science is advanced in this way. Science is not a bunch of white-smocked men and women running around in a lab who are just writing in notebooks and they never share their findings and then all of a sudden you have quantum mechanics. Things are written, they are researched, and they are checked for factual accuracy or at least that's the way it's supposed to happen. There are about 25,000 give or take scientific journals published in the world today. Peer review should prevent the presence of gobbledygook, mistakes, fabrications and fraud, but a surprising amount of the time it does not do that. An article from April 1999 in the Royal the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine By Richard Smith, articles entitled Peer Review, a Flawed Process at the Heart of Scientific Journals. And part of what he notes in the article uh, is this, quote, what is clear is that the forms of peer review are protean. Probably the systems of every journal and every grant-giving body are different in at least some detail, and some systems are very different. There may even be some journals using the following classic system. The editor looks at the title of the paper and sends it to two friends whom the editor thinks knows something about the subject. If both advise publication, the editor sends it to the printers. If both advise against publication, the editor rejects the paper. If the reviewers disagree, the editor sends it to a third reviewer and does whatever he or she advises. This pastiche, which is not far from the systems I have used, is little better than tossing a coin because the level of agreement between reviewers on whether a paper should be published is little better than you'd expect by chance. Robbie Fox, the great great 20th century editor of The Lancet, who was no admirer of peer review, wondered whether anyone would notice if he were to swap the piles marked publish and reject. He also joked that the Lancet had a system of throwing a pile of papers down the stairs and publishing those that reached the bottom. Continuing to quote, Stephen Locke, when editor of the British Medical Journal, conducted a study in which he alone decided which of a consecutive series of papers submitted to the journal he would publish. He then let the papers go through the usual process. There was little difference between the papers he chose and those selected for the full process of peer review. Continuing to quote, Peer review might also be useful for detecting errors or fraud. At the BMJ British Medical Journal, we did several studies where we inserted major errors into papers that we then sent to many reviewers. Nobody ever spotted all of the errors. Some reviewers didn't spot any, and most reviewers spotted only a quarter. Peer review sometimes picks up fraud by chance, but generally it's not a reliable method for detecting fraud because it works on trust. A major question, which I'll return to, is whether peer review in journals should cease to work on trust. Again, in the uh, Journal of the Royal Medical Society in December of 2006, The title of the article is, Scientific Journals Are Faith-Based, Is There Science Behind Peer Review? And the authors say, We would argue the primary reason that journals have not changed is that they are faith-based. We believe in them. We dare not question them. Let us dissect the scientific research process as seen. We are all familiar with this process of research and publication. We first complete our research and then prepare it for publication. The structure is very specific to scientific publication, introduction, methods, research, and discussion. Virtually all journals use this structure. The manuscript is then sent out for peer review with two or three reviewers providing comments. The article is then returned to the editor for a final decision. End of quote. Now, just as an uh, interruption here, I would say that uh, at the age of 53 and having read about science and scientific journals since I was in middle school, I had no idea that peer review only consisted of two or three other people reviewing an article before it went into a journal. I had in mind, uh, apparently very wrongly, that this was a process where articles would be seen by um, at least a dozen people, if not people in a room, discussing the pros and cons. Uh, It's not nearly as I had suspected. Which leads to An article like this in Slate, how gobbledygook ended up in respected scientific journals. This is from February 2014, quoting from the beginning. In 2005, a group of MIT graduate students decided to goof off in a very MIT graduate student way. They created a program called SciGen that randomly generated fake scientific papers, entire papers, Continuing to quote, thanks to Cygen for the last several years, computer-written gobbledygook has been routinely published in scientific journals and conference proceedings. Quote, according to Nature News, Cyril Labbé, a French computer scientist, recently informed Springer and the IEEE, the International Something, two major scientific publishers, that between them they had published more than 120 algorithmically generated articles. In 2012, Labe had told the IEEE of another batch of 85 fake articles. He's been playing with Sajin for a few years. A 2010 fake researcher he created, Ike Antkari, briefly became the 21st most highly cited scientist in the Google Scholars database. Now, let me reread that last part. In 2010, a fake researcher briefly became the 21st most highly cited scientist in Google scholars database quoting from later in the article as Peter Higgs said after he won last year's Nobel prize in physics today I wouldn't even get an academic job it's as simple as that I don't think I would be regarded as productive enough we'll come back to the uh, amount of journal articles written soon this is from the Washington Post Uh, I think this is from this year possibly, actually March of last year, an article entitled, Major Publisher Retracts 43 Scientific Papers Amid Wider Fake Peer Review Scandal. Article says, quote, A major publisher of scholarly medical and science journals has retracted 43 papers because of fabricated peer reviews amidst signs of a broader fake peer review racket affecting many more publications. The publisher is Biomed Central, based in the United Kingdom, which puts out 277 peer-reviewed journals. A partial list of the retracted articles suggests most of them were written by scholars at universities in China. But Jagisha Patel, Associate Editorial Director for Research Integrity at Biomed Central, where people have apparently been asleep at the switch, said, quote, it's not a China problem. We get a lot of robust research uh, from China. We see this as a broader problem of how scientists are judged, end of quote. Uh, Also, from the same article, last year, in one of the most publicized scandals, the Journal of Vibration and Control in the field of acoustics retracted 60 articles at one time due to what it called a peer review and citation ring, in which the reviews, mostly from scholars in Taiwan, were submitted by people using fake names. So science is great what happens when the users of science are crooked 60 articles in one journal may of 2009 in a uh, website the the scientist.com the-scientist.com elsevier published six fake journals scientific publishing giant elsevier put out a total of six publications between 2000 and 2005 that were sponsored by unnamed pharmaceutical companies and looked like peer-reviewed medical journals but did not disclose sponsorship. Now, grasp for just a moment. This is not an article. These are six entire journals that were published over a space of six years. The journals themselves were fraudulent. The journals were little more than advertising for pharmaceutical companies from the article. Quote, scientific publishing giant Elsevier put out a total of six publications between 2000 uh, and 2005 that were sponsored by unnamed pharmaceutical companies and looked like peer reviewed medical journals, but did not disclose sponsorship. Elsevier is, uh, is conducting an internal review of its publishing practices after allegations came to light that the company produced a pharmaceutically a pharmaceutical company-funded publication in the early 2000s without disclosing that the journal was corporate-sponsored. Now listen to the names. The allegations involved the Australasian Journal of Bone and Joint Medicine, a publication paid for by pharmaceutical company Merck that amounted to a compendium of reprinted scientific articles and one-source reviews, most of which presented data favorable to Merck's products. The scientist obtained two two thousand three issues of the journal, which bore the imprint of Elsevier's acceptor, Excerpta Medica, neither of which carried a medical statement, or a statement obviating Merck's sponsorship. Uh, let's see. Quote the scientist in an email. Uh, excuse me, an Elsevier spokesperson told the scientist in an email that a total of six titles in a spo- series of sponsored article publications. Were put out by their Australia office and bore the Excerptomedica imprint from 2000 to, 2000 to 2005. These titles were the Australasian Journal of General Practice, the Australasian Journal of Neurology, the Australasian Journal of Cardiology, the Australasian Journal of Clinical Pharma- Pharmacy, the Australasian Journal of Cardiovascular Medicine, and the Australasian Journal of Bone and Joint Medicine. All done for the purpose of promoting pharmaceutical research and the medicine that came there from. Retracted articles in scientific journals has become such an issue that there's an entire website dedicated to it called RetractionWatch.com and in this month, March of 2016, they wrote, the number of retracted articles jumped from 500 in fiscal year 2014 to 684 in fiscal year 2015, an increase of 37 percent, so almost 700 journal articles withdrawn in 2015. Writing in PLOS One in a in an uh, article entitled Estimates of the Continuously Publishing Core of the Scientific Workforce, the authors say this. Uh, actually, I'm going to skip this one for just a second and come back. <coughs> Excuse me. Another problem is reproducibility. In an article in The Economist from 2013 called How Science Goes Wrong, modern scientists, and I'm quoting, modern scientists are doing too much trusting and not enough verifying to the detriment of the whole of science and of humanity. Too many of the findings that fill the academic ether are the result of shoddy experiments or poor analysis. A rule of thumb among biotechnology venture capitalists is that half of the published research cannot be replicated. Remember what science is? It's the ability to replicate. It's the ability to reproduce um, experiments. Verify the conclusions. Quote, even that may be optimistic. Even half may be optimistic. Quote, last year researchers at one biotech firm, Amgen, found they could reproduce just six of 53 landmark studies in cancer research. Earlier, a group at Bayer, a drug company, managed to repeat just a quarter of 67 similarly important papers. A leading computer scientist frets that three-quarters of papers in his subfield are bunk. In 2000 to 2010, roughly 80,000 patients took part in clinical trials based on research that was later retracted because of mistake or improprieties. I would advise you to remind Otis Brawley's warning. Quoting again from The Economist, One reason for all of this is the competitiveness of science. In the 1950s, when modern academic research took shape after its successes in the Second World War, it was still a rarefied pastime. The entire club of scientists numbered a few hundred thousand. As their ranks have swelled to six to seven million active researchers on the latest reckoning, scientists have lost their taste for self-policing and quality control. The obligation to publish or perish has come to rule over academic life. Competition for jobs is cutthroat. Full professors in America earn an average of $135,000 in 2012, more than judges did. Every year, six freshly minted PhDs vie for every academic post. And Nowadays, verification, the replication of other people's, other people's results, does little to advance a researcher's career, and without verification, dubious findings live on to mislead. End of quote. Quoting from later in the article, the leading journals impose high rejection rates in excess of 90% of submitted manuscripts. The most striking findings have the greatest chance of making it onto the page. Little wonder that one in three researchers knows of a colleague who has pepped up a paper by, say, excluding inconvenient data from results based on a gut feeling. And as more research teams around the world work on a problem, the odds shorten that at least one will fall prey to an honest confusion between the sweet signal of a genuine discovery and a freak of statistical noise. End of quote. Many are just flat out lying. An article in Quartz, I uh, believe, let me double check this. Yes, Quartz.com quotes Martin Hagger, psychology professor at Curtin University in Australia, He says this, quote, journals favor novelty, originality, and verification of hypothesis over robustness, stringency of method, reproducibility, and falsifiability. Therefore, researchers have been driven to finding significant effects, finding things that are novel, testing them on relatively small samples. End of quote. Uh, Wakefield and his 12 children, anybody? Quote, this has created a publication bias where studies that show strong, positive results get published, while similar studies that come up with no significant effects sit at the bottom of researchers' drawers, end of quote. And I would say that one of Otis Brawley's arguments is that because, science and, because scientists and medical professionals and journal editors don't pay attention to the negative findings and they don't pay attention to the non-findings, then they're missing out on at least half of the knowledge that they could be gaining, and that also contributes to bias." In PLOS One, in an article entitled Estimates of the Continuously Publishing Core of the Scientific Workforce, using, uh, quote, using the entire Scopus database, we estimated there are 15,153,100 publishing scientists, distinct author identifiers in the period 1996 to 2011. That's not 15 million a year. That's a total of 15 million have published in that time period of uh, 10, 15 years. However, only 150,000 of them have published something in each and every year in this 16-year period. This small core of scientists are far more cited than others, and they account for 41.7% of all papers in the same period, and 87.1% of all papers with greater than 1,000 citations in the same periods. They've been referenced by other journal article writers and scientists more than a 1,000 times. The conclusion they drew from this, though, is not positive. The conclusion they drew is negative. Quote, The proportion of the scientific workforce workforce that maintains a continuous, uninterrupted stream of publications each and every year over many years is very limited, but it accounts for the lion's share of researchers with high citation impact. This finding may have implications for the structure, stability, and vulnerability of the scientific workforce. An article in the Guardian, uh, because I think this was last year but I don't see the date, title is Nobel winner declares boycott of top science journals. Randy Sheckman says his lab will no longer send papers to nature, cell and science as they distort scientific process. Opens by saying leading academic journals are distorting the scientific process and represent a tyranny that must be broken, according to a Nobel Prize winner who has declared a boycott on the publications. Randy Schekman, a U.S. biologist who won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine this year and receives his prize in Stockholm, said his lab would no longer send research papers to the top-tier journals Nature, Cell, and Science. In a separate article in The Guardian, Sheckman himself, Writes how journals like Nature, Science, uh, Nature Cell, and Science are damaging science. When he says, "I'm a scientist. Mine is a professional world that achieves great things for humanity, but it is disfigured by inappropriate incentives. The prevailing structures of personal reputation and career advancement mean the biggest rewards often follow the flashiest work, not the best." And he criticizes nature, cell, and science, and surely you've heard of at least two of those, nature and science. Cell is a little more obscure to the man on the street or the woman in the office, I would think. But he says, quote, these luxury journals are supposed to be the epitome of quality, publishing only the best research. Because funding and appointment panels often use place of publication as a proxy for quality of science. Appearing in these titles often leads to grants and professorships. But the big journals' reputations are only partly warranted. While they publish many outstanding papers, they do not publish only outstanding papers, neither are they the only publishers of outstanding research. Quote, these journals aggressively curate their brands in ways more conducive to selling subscriptions than to stimulating the most important research. Like fashion designers who create limited edition handbags or suits, They know scarcity stokes demand, so they artificially restrict the number of papers they accept. The exclusive brands are then marked with a gimmick called impact factor, a score for each journal measuring the number of times its papers are cited by subsequent research. Better papers, the theory goes, are cited more often, so better journals boast higher uh, higher scores, yet it is a deeply flawed measure pursuing which has become an end in itself and is damaging to science as the bonus structure is, or as damaging to science as the bonus structure is to banking. Well, what about those papers that are written? Article in Smithsonian Magazine, academics write papers arguing over how many people read them. There are a lot of scientific papers out there, quote, who actually reads those papers according to one 2007 study? Not many people. Half of academic papers are read only by their authors and journal editors, the study's authors write, end of quote. And I would hope the peers who review them. Quoting again, academia's incentive structure is such that it's better to publish something than nothing, even if that something is only read by you and your reviewers, end of quote. And this goes to what Sheckman was talking about in a way that there's a perverse incentive just to publish so the quality of the articles is on the, is in decline, which means the quality of research is not as strong because the incentive is to publish something so that you can have it in your resume and when you go up for review or you apply for the next job and you've published 15 articles in the last three years or whatever and there's money involved in the ever so back and forth Mother Jones. There's a reference to an article uh, in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings, and I'm quoting now. In a damning op-ed published Friday, Arthur Kaplan, a medical, ethicist, a medical ethicist at NYU's Langone Medical Center, called out scientists who are turning a blind eye to the scientific publishing industry's, what he calls, quote, publication pollution problem, end of quote, Continuing the longer quote, at the root of the matter, pay to publish journals with weak or non-existent pre-publication review standards that are, quote, corroding the reliability of research. In the Mayo Clinic Proceedings, the, the title is uh, of the article is The Problem of Publication Pollution Denialism, quote, The world is facing a huge threat from pollution. The scientific community seems unable or unwilling to do anything about the problem and appears to be in a state of denial. The pollution crisis I'm describing is not the warming of the Earth's atmosphere due to an accumulation of greenhouse gases. It's not the tragedy of plastic materials accumulating in the oceans. It's not the air pollution that is overwhelming many major urban areas and contributing to respiratory and other diseases in local populations. It is instead the pollution of science and medicine by plagiarism, fraud, and predatory publishing. If the medical and scientific communities continue to remain in publication pollution denial, the trustworthiness, utility, and value of science and medicine will be irreparably damaged. Harvard researcher Mark Schreim recently wrote an article entitled Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs? The Surgical and Neoplastic Role of Cuckoo Cacao extract in breakfast cereals, basically chocolate powder. Continuing the article, the fake authors he chose for the piece were Pinkerton A. LeBrain and Orson Wells. Shram submitted this fake article to 37 journals. At last, Count 17 had accepted this obviously phony, nonsensical paper. John Bohannon did the same thing with a completely phony paper, and even more depressing results in terms of peer-review acceptance to journals. The journals that took these gibberish-laden, concocted articles were scam-author-must-pay profit-driven entities that nevertheless have every appearance of being legitimate journals. Now, they don't go through peer review. Uh, The publication lessens the legitimate science. And all the things that you could possibly imagine are true uh, happen as a result. So, not only is there a problem with the peer review process, not only is there a problem with fraudulent material in in actual journals. Not only is there a problem with fraudulent journals coming from journal publishers, there's also the problem of fraudulent journals that will just print whatever they're sent because you send the money along with it, and then you can pad your resume by doing an article on being cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. The issue is not science. The issue is scientism. The issue is the belief that science is always going to get it right, and you can trust it no matter what. Well, over the long haul, science is self-correcting. But what happens when science gets it wrong in the short term? Why do people think autism is caused by vaccines? Well, it's because science told them so. This is Marty Duren and you've been listening to the Fourth Estate Podcast. The Fourth Estate is brought to you by Jordan at woodwatches.com. 100% woodwatches, unique and unforgettable. Check them out at woodwatches.com and use the coupon code t 4 E podcast and save yourself 10%. You can also save 10% by using the coupon code t 4 podcast at philiplarson.com That's P-H-I-L-L-I-P-L-A-R-S-E-N dot com. Author of the book suited for graduates called Suit Up, preparing them for life after graduation and with graduation nearing. I would encourage you to check out Philip's selection at philiplarson.com and use the coupon code t 4 podcast for the graduate that is in your life. Thanks to Davis Godwin for the fantastic artwork, cover art for the Fourth State Podcast. If you get a chance, please uh, review and rate in iTunes. That assists in search results and lends uh, credibility and what's called social proof to the podcast. And I would be uh, tremendously encouraged if you do that. If you'd like to uh, advertise on the 4th Estate Podcast, please email me, marty at roundtablemediagroup.com. And I will be happy to send you the monthly rates to advertise. Thank you so much for listening. The 4th Estate Podcast is a production of Roundtable Media Group. Please check out Roundtable Media Group at roundtablemediagroup.com. And if you have a podcast or a blog that you'd like to affiliate, please contact us there or email at marty at roundtablemediagroup.com. And until the next time, I hope you have a fantastic day. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Fourth Estate Podcast with Marty Duran. Visit Marty's blog, Kingdom in the Mist, at MartyDuran.com, And follow him on Twitter, at Marty Duran. We invite you to subscribe to the Fourth Estate Podcast on iTunes.